It is my hope in these podcasts to cover several fundamental subjects, such as what is original yoga, what is original Christianity, especially since (laughs) that's part of the title of our website, and also uh, answering questions that have been sent to me and to share with you some of my memories and my experiences in India, especially. To also talk about the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, what some of these very sacred books mean, and of course also the Yoga Sutras. Right now I would like to give some attention to what I personally call the Yoga Life. Many times in our life, we will hear people say, or people may say to us, if only I had known then what I know now. This is especially true in relation to being a yogi. You know, Jesus in the Gospel of St. Luke said, which of you intending to build a tower sits not down first and counts the cost whether he will have sufficient to finish it, lest, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. I have spent over half a century watching yogis begin and very few carrying on. Very few able to complete, again, the yoga life. In a talk I heard years ago by Paramahansa Yogananda, he was speaking to the residents of the Mount Washington Center not long before his leaving of this world. And he said this, They will fall on your right and on your left and some will come to the door and fall asleep. It's very much like being on a battlefield when you become a serious yogi. And on a battlefield, people fall, and a lot of them die. The Bhagavad Gita begins on the battlefield of Kurukshetra. And at the end of the Battle of Kurukshetra, only a handful of all those thousands of people were left. Sad to say, it often is that way with contemporary yogis. But why? Because they're good people. They were inspired by God. Many of the people I'm thinking about were very dear close friends. We spent hours meditating together, speaking together about various aspects of spiritual life. I mean, it was of tremendous value to me. Their great company, it truly was satsanga, company with truth. But years went by and years went by and suddenly, it's like in the Bible, where a man was speaking about being put in charge of a prisoner in time of war. And then he said, As I was busy here and there, he was gone. That is really a sad thing. 
Why did those people fall away? Many of them turning against yoga even. Many of them going right back to the limited spiritual or religious ideas they had, even say in their childhood. The answer was this. They could not persevere. They could not keep on because they did not fully lead the yoga life. You know, a tree is not essentially the roots, but without them, the tree will die. A tree is not essentially the bark, but without it, the tree will die. A tree is not essentially the trunk, but without it, the tree will die. A tree is not essentially the branches, but without them, the tree will die. A tree is not essentially the leaves, but without them, the tree will die. Because a tree is a whole thing, living and united, and it is the same, absolutely the same, with the yoga life. Yoga is not just a practice or a philosophy. It is an, an entire way of life intended to transform, to transmute the present human life into divine life. Without this understanding and without commitment to the yoga life, there is simply no need to give yoga a second thought. And by yoga, I mean the quest for liberation of the spirit, where yoga is an eternal science intended to reveal and manifest the eternal. No one either can or should be forced to lead the yoga life. But those who want to attain spiritual enlightenment and freedom must do so. When they begin and whether they persevere is all up to the individual. But the sages of India have given us a complete picture of the yogi and the yoga life. And in these podcasts, I would like to discuss these various aspects with you. Let's begin with what I call climbing the ladder of consciousness. As a human being moves up the ladder of evolution, so the center of his consciousness moves into successively higher bodies. Those of the lowest evolutionary status are aware only of their physical entity, and they live as though that alone were real. Simple survival and physical maintenance are their sole drives. It is these people who demand that their religion promise them earthly benefits, an opulent earth-type afterlife, and in some religions, the eventual resurrection of the physical body and its possession by them eternally. In the next step of evolution, the individual begins to identify intensely with his feelings, especially his emotions, engages all things by his emotional reaction to them. This kind of person demands that his religion be a devotional one of inspiration, of hope, and love that will reunite him with his loved ones in the sweet by and by, where he will be everlastingly happy. On the next rung of the evolutionary ladder, the human being becomes identified with and absorbed in the senses, reaching out for more and more and novel sensory experiences. He demands that his religion be one of beautiful and impressive worship, one which will take him to heaven, 
where he will hear beautiful music, see beautiful scenes, and eat of the fruits of paradise. Stepping up to the next rung, the human being discovers the wonder of his intellect. Therefore, he will demand of his religion, unless he thinks he's beyond religion because of his intellectual brilliance, he will, as I say, demand that it explain everything to him through an elaborate and sophisticated system of philosophy and theology and make all mysteries known so that there is nothing he does not understand. He will like it even better if it imparts to him the knowledge of supposed mysteries that those outside the religion do not understand, thus making him truly superior to them. Although physical, emotional, and sensory conditions may still greatly affect him, he has grown somewhat tired of them. But now he has this new toy, the whole new dimension of the intelligent mind, the ability to bring into his scope of perception ideas of things he never dreamed of in previous lives. And so he becomes like a bird that has been caged so long he, it only wants to fly and fly and fly in the realms of the intellect. Just as a person who has almost died of thirst tends to drink too much, or someone who has been starving tends to eat too much, in the same way the intellectual man ends up with mental indigestion, as Yogananda, the great master, often said. But finally, spiritual intuition arises in this evolving human being, and it dawns on him that playing with all those ideas has not really produced any change or gotten him anywhere. In other words, he can think and think about water, discuss water, learn its chemical formula, read books on water, but all that does not give him a single drop of the real thing, water itself. So in time he comes to realize that abstractions are not enough. But most of the great teachers in the world have spoken in abstractions, at least publicly or through scriptures, on a very high and exclusively intellectual level. Although the writings of great masters of wisdom might speak of what attainments are possible through the evolution of the human consciousness and urge people to move on higher to these states, the how, especially in the West, has almost always in time been lost because people have preferred to hear the ideals rather than learn the process for their actualization. We keep a description of the goal, but we lose the map, so we cannot find the goal. It is very inspiring to read such things as how the goal of the spirit is to be like the radiant drop of dew which drops into and merges in the infinite ocean of being, but how do we get to that ocean of being? It is thrilling to hear that he who knows the immortal being becomes himself immortal. But how will we accomplish the immortalizing knowing? There must come a time when we leave the advertising aside and get busy obtaining the product. And that is when yoga begins. For Yogananda often said, yoga is the beginning of the end. Let's start with basics. Yoga is a Sanskrit word that means to join. In other words, it's union and also the way to accomplish that union. And what we join through yoga is 
our consciousness to our own essential being, the spirit whose nature is pure consciousness. And then next, we join our finite consciousness to the infinite consciousness, God, the Supreme Self, that really are eternally one and have never been separated. We've simply lost the perception of that eternal union. Originally, according to yoga philosophy, we dwelt in the consciousness of that oneness. But we came into relative existence, and as we descended into that world, until finally we reached the material world, we lost that awareness somewhere along the way and couldn't manifest it or even conceive of it anymore. But through yoga, that lost consciousness is regained and actualized in our life sphere. Thinking of this, one of the great yogis of the 20th century, Dr. I.K. Taimney, wrote in his book, The Science of Yoga, these words. According to the yogic philosophy, it is possible to rise completely above the illusions and miseries of life and to gain infinite knowledge, bliss, and power through enlightenment here and now. And he's got here and now in italics while we are still living in the physical body. No vague promise of an uncertain post-mortem happiness this, but a definite scientific assertion of a fact verified by the experience of innumerable yogis, saints, and sages who have trodden the path of yoga throughout the ages. In other words, back to this subject, the yoga life. Yoga is the way we answer for ourselves the prayer Lead me from the unreal to the real. Lead me from darkness to the light. Lead me from death to immortality. Toward the end of his comments on the Yoga Sutras, Shankar says this, There can be no lamplight unless the oil, wick, and a flame are brought together. In other words, again, the yoga life. Trevor Leggett says, in his introduction to Shankara's commentary on the Yoga Sutras, this is yoga presented for the man of the world who must first clear and then steady his mind against the fury of illusory passions and free his life from entanglements. And Patanjali has told us how to do that. He has given us the list of what we call yama and niyama. Shankar also says, following yama and niyama is the basic qualification to practice yoga. The qualification is not simply that one wants to do yoga, for the holy text says, but he who is not first turned away from his wickedness, who is not tranquil and subdued, or whose mind is not at rest, he can never obtain the self, even by knowledge. These are Shankara's words. So then, we need to consider yama and niyama. What are they? They're often called the Ten Commandments of Yoga, but they have nothing to do with the idea of sin and virtue or good or evil as dictated by some cosmic potentate. Rather, they're determined by a thoroughly practical, pragmatic basis, namely, that which strengthens and facilitates our yoga practice should be observed. 
and that which weakens or hinders it should be avoided. It is not a matter of being good or bad, but of being wise or foolish. Each one of these five don'ts and five do's is a support of the yoga life. In fact, is the way to empower us to lead the yoga life. The list, you might say the recipe for successful yoga, given to us by Patanjali, has these ten principles or ingredients. One, ahimsa, which is non-violence, non-injury, and harmlessness. Two, satya, which is truthfulness and honesty. Three, asteya, non-stealing, honesty, and non-misappropriativeness. Four is brahmacharya, sexual continence and thought, word, and deed, as well as control of all the senses. Fifth is aparigraha, which is non-possessiveness, non-greed, non-selfishness, non-acquisitiveness. Six is shocha, purity, cleanliness. Seven is santosha, contentment, peacefulness. Eight is tapas, or tapasya, which means austerity and practical spiritual discipline, that is, things that produce a real result. The ninth principle is swadhyaya, which is introspective self-study, and only secondarily, spiritual study. And tenth, Ishwara Pranidhana, offering in one's life to God, to Ishwara, whom we've already discussed in previous podcasts. All of these deal with the innate powers of the human being. Or, in another way of looking at it, with the abstinence and observance that will develop and release those powers to be used toward our spiritual perfection, for our self-realization and liberation. Shankara says, so yama and niyama are methods of yoga. They're not merely aids that can be optional. But at the same time, of course, the practice of actual yoga methods helps us to follow the ways of yama and niyama. So no one should ever be discouraged from taking up yoga right now. They should determinedly start working on the practice of yoga and on yama and niyama simultaneously. If this is done carefully, wisely, and intently, then success will be ours. So in the next podcast, I want to begin a really good, in-depth look at yama and niyama because they have many, many applications that we often just don't think about, that we completely miss. And therefore, we don't get the benefit of the entire practice. Again, just as a yoga life is whole and complete, so yama and niyama are all interdependent on one another because they all are based ultimately in the mind itself. So next time, 
we'll take up the subject of Ahimsa.